In this episode of the DistilleryTours.scot podcast, we speak to Lucas Denoviak, Global Brand Ambassador at International Beverages. Due to his role, Lucas finds himself in the fortunate position of working with some amazing distilleries, including Bull Blair, Pulteney, Speyburn and Nockdo. And so it will come as no surprise that there was plenty for himself and David to chat about. Listen as they delve into the history of each distillery, with Lucas explaining what it is that makes each of their malts so distinctive. Lucas certainly has plenty of great stories to tell, so sit back, relax and prepare to be fascinated. Good afternoon. Welcome to DistilleryTours.scot's new podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking to Lucas Donoviak, Global Brand Ambassador at International Beverages. Lucas, how are you doing? Dave, I'm, I'm very well. How are you? I'm great, mate. I'm great. Listen, you look after some of the, the, the most amazing distilleries in the world. You look after Bill Blair, you look after Pulteney, you look after Speyburn. Well, what, what, what you're saying is I've got the best job in the world. Is that, is that what you're getting at? Lucas, what I'm, what I'm saying is, is if you ever want to chuck it and you want to kind of move away, you've now got my, my mobile number. You have also got my email address and I would work for nothing for the first year. Is that, is that a deal? I may just take you up on that. But listen, you've got that much bloody whiskey here, so I want to mine into it, basically, and I would love if we could actually start talking about the Bill Blair distillery first. Could you tell us a wee bit about Bill Blair distillery, its history and whatever? I think it's very fitting to start with Bill Blair. It is the oldest um, distillery in our portfolio, and it's one of the oldest working distilleries in Scotland, full stop. It was uh, first licensed in 1790. So it's part of that sort of, um, you know, late 18th century wave of distilleries, which really predates the big 1820s sort of boom. We're all aware of this, the golden era of distilling that followed, you know, that golden century. But there were distilleries operating in Scotland naturally before that point. Uh, and there were also a number of distilleries operating uh, legally. However, north of the High Highland Line, that was somewhat... Uh, somewhat thinner on the ground, if you like. But uh, uh, the tenant on, on the Balblair farm at that time, John Ross and his, his clan, they started Balblair Distillery, or they licensed Balblair Distillery in 1790. We actually know that they were distilling on, on the site probably at least 50 years prior to that. But let's uh, let's stick to 1790 as, as, that, as that point. So this is Balblair Farm, which is in Edderton, not far from Tain. So you're right on Dornock Firth, uh, you know, it's about 45 minutes, 50 minutes north of Inverness for, for those of your listeners uh, who are maybe sort of planning to take the trip as a part of, uh, at that time, part of the Balnagowan, Balnagowan estate. Uh, so that's uh, that's when the distillery was founded, 1790. So one of the one of the oldest working distilleries, initially a farm operation, as as were all distilleries um, in the Highlands, I suppose, um, uh, you know, up to up to really kind of mid, you know, mid 19th century. So farm operation initially by by the 1850s, it was a, a dedicated, a dedicated site, uh, but it was still within the farm. Uh, and then by the 1890s, uh, the, the, the farm was taken over by the distillery was taken over by uh, by the Cowans, by the Cowan family. Uh, but that's that's almost sort of beside the point. At that point, late 19th century, so 100 years on, you know, the distilling industry is going in a particular direction. You know, blending is a huge thing, so all, all, a huge thing. All, all the markets around the world are opening up. Uh, the big blending houses um, of the central belt of Scotland, you know, require substantial volumes of single malt spirit for uh, for blending into their, their now famous brands. Uh, let's put it this way. And, uh, um, you know, that part of Scotland now had a, a rail connection to the rest of the the country. So um, um, Alexander Cowan, who was at the helm at that time, 
took the decision to to build a, a new facility for the distillery, essentially a couple of hundred me meters or yards down the road um, within the village of Edgerton, and to uh, to relocate it close to the the rail line. And if you go to visit today, most of what you see was built in in you know from 1890 onwards, really for. Uh, for Alexander Cowan. So one of the oldest working distilleries uh, in Scotland, but it sort of moved uh, slightly, shifted the location slightly a couple of times uh, during that time. Uh, and it's uh, it's all very interesting to see to see on the ground. Interestingly enough, the, the Cowans didn't operate the distillery for a long time. I mean, they they, they were forced to initially close um, by uh, sort of 1911. So it was one of the one of the first distilleries in that kind of wave of, of distillery closures and, and sites being mothballed. Uh, and it operated intermittently, so uh, you know it was on and off, you know, until until the 30s, uh, and then there was sort of uh, no signs of operation really past that point. During the war, quite an interesting story: Norwegian troops were stationed in Scotland; they were training in Scotland, and uh, the distillery buildings were used as um, as essentially accommodation for them. So Norwegian troops stationed at the distillery during the war. I'm, I'm reliably told uh, there shouldn't really have been any stock left out of the story by the time they moved in uh, but there was certainly none left after after they moved out that that, that much is for certain we had a, a visit from uh, king of norway actually at the story at that time to to inspect the troops um but shortly after the war by late 1940s the site was uh, purchased by a, an enterprising uh, man solicitor from band bertie cummings in fact, he kind of he crops up in, in the story of many distilleries that, that reopen after the war. He seems to be one of those sort of central figures to to test an historical process. So depending on the view that you take, you know, whether, whether these distilleries would have opened, you know, anyway, but he just happened to be, you know, in the right place at the right time, or whether you take the view of history, you know, the sort of the great man, you know, the great woman view of history where, where people, um, you know, People cause history to to sort of to accelerate at certain times, but he was one of those figures in, in history of Scotch whisky. He, he he bought up several sites uh, that had been mothballed, brought them back to life, restarted them, and actually promptly sold um, um, most of them in quite a, a quite a, a quick order. Uh, but nevertheless, the distillery came back to life, started filling, um, you know, in 1948, uh, 49, and has been operating without a hitch. <laughs> Although perhaps uh, John McDonald, the distillery manager, um, uh, for you know, for forever, forever um, uh, wrestling with this historic site, would maybe disagree. But the, but the distillery has been operating, and nevertheless, in producing this sort of wonderful, very traditional Highland single malt whisky ever since. It sounds incredible, to be honest with you. And I'm really kind of want to talk about the whisky as well. Could you tell us kind of a wee bit about the whisky about Blair Distillery? Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think it's one of those spirits. That, that are truly an, an embodiment of of the place um, and the people history. But that's true of of you know many single malts in Scotland. I think it's actually in a, in a kind of in a, in a soft sense, it's something which is difficult to capture in the in the definition, right? Certainly, the Scotch Whisky Association would would you know that's not something that would sort of fall under their purview. But but in my head, regardless of the, the technical specification and uh, and the various sort of um, you know process limitations that are put on on single malt production there is one thing that, that single malt must do in order to be scotch you know single malt single malt whiskey and that that's the it, it must talk to the place it must it must inform uh, the drinker the the, the the curious imbiber the inquirer of 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 the category about 
where it came from and who made it and what what, what was made from right so, so it's a it's a rich source of information as opposed to many other spirit categories right even if you look at sort of the way that the single malt is marketed right it's it's marketed around information it's it's marketed around stories about 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 truths and and there will be other spirit categories which are which are you know tasty and, and they have their place but they will be marketed around say purity right uh, you know this was filtered 40,000 times and therefore it carries no information whatsoever. You know, the water comes from a glacier. You will never find pure water. It tastes of nothing. That's that's essentially, I mean, this is super premium vodka marketing, right? But if you look at if you look at single malt, it's all about the story. It's all about the place. And I think the, the liquid must must necessarily must carry that information. So 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 this is sorry, this is a long digression. But but when I think about bubbler spirit, this is what I think about. It's a spirit that carries carries that information. It's also a spirit that, that, that has that, that that history of change locked into it. If you think about the style of Highland spirit, you know, way back when, in Balblair's case, you know, pre-1911, it would have been peated or heavily peated spirit, right? Uh, the maltings were done on site, traditional floor maltings, you know, two-level kiln. So uh, the style of the spirit would have been sort of, you know, smoky, but it would have been sort of also much more robust, Linked to um, uh, warm top condensation, which was in place, um, you know, through, throughout most of the, the history of, of the site. If you sort of fast forward to the second half of the 20th century, and if you look at the technological advances and the changes that happen on site, and you know, obviously making making the site more more efficient, making it kind of run better, so to speak, but but, but also responding to the the circumstance and responding to 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 the world of whiskey, you know, as it was sort of emerging from from that sort of you know bleakness of, of sort of you know middle of the 20th century one of the things that was happening in Scotland was was consolidation right so so these big sort of uh, you know distilling sort of uh, multinational uh, companies and these sort of bigger empires started emerging uh, and one of the things that came with it was um, was uh, very closely to the purchasing power with regards to uh, malting. Malting on site was simply not viable anymore, and these maltings uh, attached to the distillery started dropping like flies. And uh, there was a there was a very good very good reason for that. Right. So Balblair uh, stopped malting in the 1960s, like like actually like most distilleries in the area. Uh, but also, um, you know, there was also a number of other changes. It used to operate a three-still system, uh, which was an unbalanced sort of, you know, one of those kind of strange, you know, Mortlock-esque uh, or kind of Benrinus-esque uh, systems. Um, and that was sort of stopped in the second half of the 20th century. Another thing was obviously a move from direct firing of the stills, so actually, you know, literally burning a fire underneath the still, to um, to indirect firing, so using using um, steam as a means of transferring heat into the still and then eventually um you know transferring from from warm top condensation to a much more efficient um uh, shell and tube condensation which which i think kind of completes that kind of period of change and the 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 present style of bob Lair is really a reflection of that it is a traditional highland single malt spirit where the production methods haven't changed but it's also a reflection of some of these smaller adjustments and some of these smaller improvements that have been made over over you know over the ages. And I, I, to, to to my mind, what it really sort of carries over is is a weight, is a viscosity. It's just that beautiful kind of presence on the palate. It sits so confidently. Um, it's 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 in a way it's sort of compact, but it's so so confident on on the palate. 
is unique in 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 that way it just sips like nothing else it has that that just sort of wow effect as we would say right on the entry right on the delivery right another aspect to it is um is the high end and this is kind of where we're looking really at the the 19th and 20th century sort of late 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 19th and and then into 20th century developments that, that sort of caused the spirit to develop into into an ever more kind of fruity intensely sort of perfumed very tropical and very elegant spirit so on one hand you have this uh, sort of presence uh, and weight uh, and on the other hand you have the the, the the intense tropical fruitiness that really comes off you know off the spirit right as it runs you know off the the the, the spirit safe it just exudes that beautiful incredible sort of citrus apricot so if it's already into that green banana spectrum uh, and and it will continue to develop that it will continue to ret retain that in maturation you know until very very late age uh, so this is one of the the, the fingerprints of Blair, if you like this is one of the things that the, 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 you know i tend to focus on certainly when i put a glass of uh Blair to my to my nose so that's a spirit uh, not sure not sure if this is uh um you know sort of maybe too much detail but uh no, listen th th this is what this is all about to be honest with you this is um you know that th this is what people want to hear i mean the, the last thing they want to do is hear me actually they're, they're all interested in in the kind of the the, the spirit the, the, the flavor profile I'm actually interested, in fact, in the new expressions that you have launched recently. If you could maybe kind of tell us a wee bit more about that. Yeah, no rest for the wicked, right? And we know uh, <laughs> we <laughs> we know what the whiskey lovers want, and, and and you know we're working hard in the background to to hopefully hopefully satisfy those uh, tastes. Obviously, Blair being a you know a small sort of boutique brand, um, we perhaps don't uh, uh, don't release uh, new expressions with the frequency that that maybe some of the collectors and enthusiasts would would sometimes like to see but but i guess the trade-off here is that when we do release uh, new things they tend to be thought through and they tend to be really buttoned up and they tend to be really i mean dare i say perfect uh, <laughs> you know we 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 we, um, we really obsess over the, the finest detail with regards to these new releases so so um whiskey was released last year now last calendar year in 2023 was Balblair 21 years old, Oloroso Sherry Cask. Now, now there is a there is a significance to uh, this sort of ever so slightly convoluted or complicated naming here. Um, obviously aged for a minimum of 21 years. Um, by the way, we age all of our single malt stock on site at the distillery in Dunwich warehouses. Right. This is a, this is a, a sort of a fine point of differentiation. And um, if you listen to different distillers, I mean people who don't have the the capacity to age on site in Dunwich will say, oh, it doesn't matter, right? But then people who actually do have the capacity to do it. We'll see, it does matter. Yeah, it does matter. Right? So so we're obviously inclined to say that it does matter, but but these beautiful, you know, humid, cool. Honestly, Lucas, I actually think that there is, there is probably sometimes no better place to be than in a Dunwich warehouse, sitting among casks full of aging whiskey. I, I agree, and it tastes best. In the Dunwich warehouse, it does it. You can, you, you actually, if anybody's going to do a tour, um, try and get a tour as well. That you get a tasting or you visit the Dunwich warehouse if you've never done it before. And it is one of you, it's like it's like a cathedral for whiskey, to be honest, to be with. honest with you. Sorry, carry on, I digress. 
I, I agree. This is, this is a fine digression, if you, if you don't mind. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I would say one one thing to consider, uh, also sort of to understand from our point of view, it is quite challenging to put on a tasting in a Dunwich warehouse because because they are under bond, right? So uh, uh, so uh, actually serving um, alcohol in a bonded warehouse is somewhat problematic from obviously you know excise and duty point of point of view. Uh, there, there is a there is a way to do it, and we'll, we'll talk about uh, another one of our distilleries later, and I'll, I can tell you a little bit about that. But um, yeah, but essentially, you need to pay duty on your stock, obviously, as you would, you know, prior to prior to obviously taking it out of the cask. But yeah, I, I agree. Dunwich Warehouse, you know, they, they, they're incredible spaces, and especially those old Dunwich Warehouses. We have Dunwich Warehouses at Balblair, which which date back to the 1890s. They were built for Alexander Cowan, and then we have um, warehouses which were built added in the um, 1960s for Allied, and um, uh, and they they are slightly different. The former are are um, stone and slate roof construction, uh, whereas the um, um, the latter are are brick construction, right? And they do actually perform slightly differently, and they do develop the stock in a slightly different way. But but what really comes into play here is also the fact that those stone warehouses are so much older, and and they do develop. A, a microclimate they do develop their own maturation conditions uh, so so yeah the, the warehouses do develop their own maturation conditions and 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 they do impact especially over long maturation periods right if if, if you're looking at those you know 15 18 21 25 year old expressions the, the conditions that the cask is is mature maturing in will obviously and logically have have a big impact on the finished product. And in our case, those Dunwich warehouses, they offer, uh, you know, very, very stable maturation environments. It's very low temperature amplitude and consistently uh, high humidity. So, so the, you know, we think that for, for the long run, for the, you know, the for, for the casks to go the distance, they are absolutely perfect. And, and Balblair 21 is really a, a fine example. So initially matured in American oak, casks um, um so in this case we're looking at you know barrels or hogsheads which are essentially the same staves but just rebuilt to slightly different size uh, but these refill casks uh, they are the bread and butter of the industry we only use air dried american oak you know fantastic quality wood in the system um, um only top top um you know drawer casks used for single malt purposes at Balblair. And then the stock is re-racked or, or refilled into Spanish oak. Um, in this case, they are Spanish oak butts, so big 500 litre casks, uh, which are seasoned for us to order um, with Oloroso-style sherry. And, and Oloroso is, uh, you know, as you'll know, David, it's a, it's a, it's a dry, sort of oxidised uh, style sherry, which, which works really, really well in this context. And we're going to use these sherry casks for a further maturation. So it's not a finish of, you know, six months or what have you. But we're going to keep that whiskey in those casks for another five, six years uh, to really take on a lot of that beautiful Spanish oak sort of darkness character, that, that tannic backbone, you know, the beautiful sort of dried fruit, the, the sort of the dark chocolate that we typically associate with. What, let's see the way you're t- talking there, Lucas, to be honest with you. I'm looking at my clock here and I'm thinking, is it too early to start drinking? Honestly, it's, uh, I mean, it sounds incredible, actually. And Bal Blair, uh, uh, to any listener, 
um, if you've not visited Bill Blair, you, you need to actually visit it. And you might have actually seen Bill Blair as well, because it actually starred in a film. Could you tell us a wee bit about that? Yeah, well, what an incredible story that was. You know, Ken Loach, obviously a, a British director, uh, not known for, for light uh, touch, you know, happy romantic comedy style cinematography, let me let me put it let me put it this way. If you're a fan, you're a fan, you know, right? Uh, but Ken Loach, yeah, a brilliant, uh, a brilliant uh, director, filmmaker, uh, chose um, Balblair Distillery as one of the, the primary um, locations to film uh, his, uh, you know, acclaimed and much loved um, um, film uh, Angel Share. Um, obviously, great story of sort of young people from, uh, you know, from from sort of inner city of Glasgow, um, sort of one of those characters from from a deprived sort of background, finding, discovering his love for whiskey, and then then sort of venturing north into into the Highlands of Scotland on the journey of discovery, um, eventually finding themselves at uh, uh, Balblair, and then going through all sorts of circumstances and adventures. I'm not going to spoil the movie, obviously, for anybody who would wish to watch it, uh, but all I can say is that Balblair features very heavily in the film, both inside and out. Also, I think all of the operators who, who were working for, for the distillery at that time ended up in the movie as extras. Uh, I think the only person who, who worked at the distillery who was who was cut was the distillery manager, uh, John <laughs> McDonald. I think he I think he wanted to be a you know a drunk drunk man in the corner somewhere, but I think he got I think he got cut. I can imagine he probably sat and watched the the finished result as well. We always family and all that. They made a day of it, and he says, "I'm just about to star in this film," and and lo and behold, he bloody was the end. <laughs> it, it was worse than that because we were all invited to the premiere in Glasgow. <laughs> he had a he had his red carpet moment, you know, all kilted up and suited and booted, and then he wasn't actually in the in the movie. Imagine the disappointment. I haven't starred in a film myself, The Bruce, which had Oliver Reed in it, and I was I got a part as an extra because we put a wee bit of cash in it, and lo and behold, uh, I, I was cut out as well. All you could see was the back of my head. And uh, so, yeah, no, but listen, moving on, actually, because we could spend two, three podcasts talking about Balboa, but I'm, I'm really interested in moving on and speaking about Pulteney Distillery. Could you tell us a wee bit about Pulteney? I mean, this is the flagship brand in our portfolio, and it's a horrible, horrible pun, but it's actually true as well, uh, which makes it which makes it all the better. Um, so Pulteney Distillery produces old Pulteney single malt whiskey, and, and I think uh, there probably isn't a listener of yours who hasn't, even if they don't recall, who, who hasn't seen a bottle of old Pulteney on, on the shelf somewhere. This is by far sort of our you know, most sort of recognised uh, single malt that we, uh, that we currently produce. Pulteney Distillery is located in Wick, which is all the way up north, up in Cape Ness, very close to John O'Groats, so about as, as, as far north as you can go in Scotland on, on the mainland. Uh, and, and obviously for the past decade or so, it's also on, uh, you know, the, the famous uh, North Coast 500 trail or, or, or route road, uh, you know, the, the Scottish sort of answer to Route 66, as they call it. But uh, I think we all agree that it's so much more picturesque than Route 66. Better distilleries as well. <laughs> yes, indeed. I think I think we're going to rub some of our uh, American friends and colleagues the wrong way. But listen, we, we have to lean this way. We have to say this, right? North Coast 500 trumps Route 66 here. I said it. Uh, but um, uh, obviously that, you know, that brought a lot of sort of attention to the very far north of Scotland. 
Uh, but the but Pulte, the city has been there, has been operating since um, uh, 1826. So in fact, uh, uh, you know, this year, a number of the cities in Scotland um, in 2024 uh, are celebrating their 200, 200 anniversary, uh, but it will be us in two years time. So, so 2026 will be our 200, 200 anniversary of, of operation. It was started um, uh, in um, Wick by a man called um, James Henderson. And it was initially a distillery which was established in the sort of newly sort of booming urban environment around Port of Wick as a distillery to really meet local demand from, from you know, from the fishing community. Wick was pretty much cut off from the rest of the mainland. I mean, it didn't have a road connection to the rest of the country until the 1920s, right? So it was a very sort of self-sufficient, a very kind of, uh, you know, insular community, uh, which really revolved around fishing for most of its existence. Initially, sort of just a sleepy, sleepy sort of um, fishing village. It was a Viking settlement from, you know, probably 8th century. Uh, but eventually, sort of, you know, towards towards the late 18th century, really started booming. The um, uh, the harbour was expanded, and the fishing industry really came into its own. It was uh, it was the North Sea herring, and they really brought attention to Wick and really brought sort of wealth and people. And you know, by mid 19th century, there were 1,100 fishing vessels operating out of the Wick Harbour. So you can imagine it just kind of you know boomed. It grew rapidly. If there is one thing that we know about, uh, you know, hardworking fishermen, you know, in sort of mid mid nineteenth century Scotland, we know that they were they were thirsty folk. They needed uh, they needed their refreshment. They needed uh, you know a little bit of reinforcement on an on, you know, I mean, herring used to fish for it at night when when it came to the surface to to to, to feed. So uh, um, so they needed they needed a local distillery. And James Henderson, he was a local entrepreneur anyway. He he owned. Uh, a mill and uh, you know brewery uh, and, and uh, allegedly illicit distilling operations already further inland. This was his foray into legal distilling and a first properly established uh, uh, distillery in in you know in 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 the royal borough of Wick. So um uh, yeah so that's Pulteney. It's a distillery which from its inception is tied to the maritime. It's tied to um, you know the, the fishing industry, and it's tied to, uh, uh, to 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 seafaring, to to going out and uh, and over the horizon. And not only that, I mean they've got some incredible whiskey as well. To be honest with you, could you tell us a wee bit about some of the some of their their, their, their whiskey? It's really unique, and I I think we we talked about um, the sort of the the lighter sort of fruitier elements of Balblair. Now this one here, it's um you know it's a it's a whiskey that really talks to the place and talks to its history um, in its own unique way. Um, it's robust, it's big, it has a presence. I think, you know, sometimes we hear to, to Old Pulteney being referred to as, as uh, you know, having sort of a salinity or having sort of a minerality, um, which is all to do with maturation on the coast. Um, now, this is a difficult thing to kind of put your finger on, right? Some people will get it, some people won't. You know, some people will argue that, you know, it can't really take on these characteristics during maturation due to sort of, you know, the type of porosity of oak and, you know, how, how could it? Whereas other people will say, well, the water source itself carries that into into the spirit. And then, you know, the casks actually breathe in, the, you know, the water, uh, the water from the North Sea as it's sort of deposited in the warehouses onto the casks. Uh, you know, breathing, breathing that salty sea air the year round. Whatever the, uh, the the truth is, there is a a, a journey of discovery here, uh, at looking 
just that, you know, it's it's an unmistakably sort of robust, unpeated style that carries that savory uh, sort of, as I say, almost sort of briny undertone. It's sweet with that sort of salted caramel, intense, pronounced sweetness. Uh, it tends to have beautiful sort of oily citrusy top. Uh, we often hear uh, that it's a little bit waxy and, and any older expressions that will tend to manifest itself in maybe sort of a chocolatey, sort of quite chewy um, quality to it. Uh, but then, you know, again, in, in my view or in our view, um, that salinity, that minerality that comes from maturation on the Caithness coast, you know, open to the North Sea, very far north in Scotland, is something that really defines it and really sets it apart from, from everybody else in Scotland. So robust, savoury, salinity, sort of salted caramel, nice and fruity at the top, but unpeated. And I think that's quite unique. And there's been, I mean, there have been some incredibly well-received new expressions of uh, Pulteney as well. Could you maybe kind of just tell us a wee bit about them? Pulteney is having a real moment right now. And, and you know, you see old Pulteney in the media, you see it, uh, you know, on shelves, and you see all of these exciting things happening. I, I guess I should start uh, maybe uh, by saying the, the Coastal series, which is a which is a series of limited releases uh, that we started a couple of years ago that celebrate our connection to the coast and other coastal regions around the, you know, around Europe. So we have had two releases within the series so far. Uh, the first one was Old Pulteney matured in casks made from French oak. Uh, the previously held uh, Pinot de Chalon, which is a uh, you know French sort of fortified wine aperitif, which is not widely known in the UK, uh, but it's a, a, you know it's it's sort of regionally really celebrated in France. It's a very very kind of sweet uh, type Pinot aperitif wine, both from red grapes or white grapes, and it really lent that expression. Sort of you know the, as you would expect, beautiful sweetness, actually slight sort of grapey sweetness, which is maybe may, maybe sounds silly to say with regards to wine, but 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 that's the case. Uh, the beautiful sort of almost like sort of balsamic sort of you know dried fruity quality, incredible release. And then last year we followed that up with Old Pulteney Port. So second installment in that series, which was obviously further matured in port pipes. In this case, there were ruby, ruby port, um, uh, both uh, both uh, pipes and barriques. So uh, two different two different vessels, uh, but uh, um, very well received. And as it turns out, those port casks work incredibly well with Pulteney because they tend to sort of really emphasize the chocolatiness. Um, they give it that almost kind of uh, again even more sort of chewy, even more sort of you know that, that mouthfeel, uh, that presence, uh, uh, that presence if you like. So incredibly well received both of those releases. And there's a there's a new a new one even isn't it a, a wee secret? Is there a new one kind of coming up pretty soon as well? Yes, there is a new expression. I think it's. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's no longer a secret. Hopefully, as of uh, as of today, which is Old Pulteney Harbour. And now this is an expression which will be available initially in the UK through, you know, at, at, at this time through through Tesco. So we're available from uh, big Tesco near you, if you like. Uh, and it's a it's an interesting look at Pulteney. Um, it doesn't carry an aid statement, uh, but the name Harbour really r refers to Wick Harbour. So the place where Wick meets the world or meets the sea, that's the, the joint, right? That is the crucial sort of... Uh, place where, where the rubber meets the road. Uh, this is the place where, you know, the, those first casks of Old Pulteney would have been loaded onto ships 
and taken out of out of Wick Harbour and taken down south to you know the big blending houses of again of uh, of Edinburgh and Glasgow and beyond. Right now, what we're doing is we're celebrating that connection to the sea by offering an expression that that offers on one hand just tremendous drinkability. You know, it has that 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 ease, particularly to you know a drinker who 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 craves something really easygoing, really easy drinking. Uh, who maybe wants that that sort of beautiful again aperitif dram, uh, or just a nice sort of relaxing dram that that delivers just massive amounts of sort of value, so much single malt for the money. But on the other hand, it it really celebrates that connect, connection to the sea by offering an old Pulteney uh, single malt matured only in beautiful, very active American uh, oak casks at an age point uh, at a point where it really helps to emphasize that that salinity that minerality that connection to the sea so if you pick up a bottle of old Pulteney harbor off the shelf tomorrow at, you know at your local tesco what you can expect is tremendous amount of drinkability uh, just a beautiful easy soft very very sort of approachable delivery uh, but also uh, you know tremendous amount of terroir and connection to the place so you're getting a full fat red-blooded Pulteney experience uh, it will transport you to the Caithness coast, but also won't break the bank. And uh, you can enjoy a bottle over the course of, uh, uh, you know, several evenings with friends or or use it for entertaining or, you know, maybe even introduce new uh, friends and family who, who don't typically drink single malt whiskey to the category. Listen, it sounds excellent, to be honest with you. It, it, it sounds excellent. And, uh, you know, this is us um, a couple of days before Burns Night as well. So, um, you know, they're, they're, they're all sounding... They're all sounding... Excellent, to be honest with you. I'm really interested as well. I've been looking forward to kind of uh, bringing us up. But Spayburn's welcomed the visitors uh, last year for the first time in, in, in a long time. Could you tell us a wee bit about maybe the history of Spayburn as well and, and, and kind of what's going on there? Yeah, I remember when I first, you know, became aware of Spayburn, I, I suppose, in a, in a significant way when I picked up my first, you know, little sort of consultancy gig with with um, with Spayburn right after uh, I graduated in 2010. And it was described to me at that time by the brand manager as a sleeping giant, right? It's a sleeping giant, uh, both in terms of the distillery, its capacity, you know, what the stock can do for us, the, the, the type of stock that we have maturing at Spayburn, but also in a way, in terms of its significance to the distilling, you know, on Speyside. So Spayburn Distillery, for your listeners, is um, is uh, situated in the town of Rothes, which is kind of right in the heart of, uh, right in the heart of Speyside. Arguably not the most uh, exciting sort of, uh, you know, center. It's not the center of the Western civilization. Let me put it this way. But um, if you're up there, if you're on Speyside, you're not you're not there for the nightlife, are you? You're 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 there for the whiskey. Uh, so um, uh, it's in Rothes, uh, along with you know several other sort of esteemed distilleries, uh, which also share share the town. It's right on the outskirts um, by Grantyburn, uh, which is the water source for the uh, for the distillery, and it's been operating there uh, since um, uh, late 1890s. So it was part of that sort of late 19th century wave of distilleries, which were purpose built, and they were built to you know slightly different new sort of technological philosophy. Uh, there was so much confidence at that time, I suppose, you know, both as a technologically, but also socially, you know, economically. And Spayburn at that time was built in a very kind of interesting, fascinating way. Uh, well, first of all, the site was not really recommended 
by uh, by the engineers and the architects for locating a distillery because it was considered to be too steep. Uh, but the original architect for the distillery it was Charles Doig, so the same you know same architect who was responsible for for perfecting the design for the Doig ventilator or the, the pagoda roof as we term it today. He was up for the challenge and uh, he built um, he built the distillery for uh, John Morrison and his brother you know, right on that site, I think access to excellent quality and exclusive rights to the, the water source was was the sort of the, the, the deciding factor. There's a cool story related to that sort of, you know, December, you know, 1897 opening. Supposedly, they were very, very keen to lay stock down for uh, Queen Victoria's Jubilee, which fell, which fell that year. Uh, but the distillery wasn't quite ready. But apparently, by sort of, you know, by December, they started distilling because, because they said, well, listen, you know, we, we have to we have to fill some casks in, in 1897. Uh, and apparently, apparently they were distilling through an Arctic storm in December without without any windows or doors in the distillery. So that shows you that shows you the level of dedication. But what's really unique, what's really visible to any visitor today is the fact that they had drum maltings installed at the distillery. They were probably, they were put in a couple of years later. So initially when the, when the distillery initially started operating, they were not quite commissioned yet. They were imported from, from an engineering uh, company, um, German technology, and they were, they were located in a dedicated building on site, which is adjacent to, um, uh, to the kiln. And um, they are incredible. Uh, if you've ever been to, you know, bigs of drum maltings, I mean, there aren't many left in the UK, right? Uh, but if you've been to big drum maltings, they're, they're, they're an incredible kind of sight to behold. And, and, and what we have at Speyburn is essentially miniature version of that. When I say miniature, they are still huge, uh, but they are, <laughs> they are sort of on a, a, on a sort of individual distillery scale, if you like. So these drum maltings, what they did was, uh, was they did away with the need for, for a floor you know, multi floors. Yes, yeah, so essentially, you know, steeps at the top floor. You would, you would, um, you would steep your your barley in water, help it take on, take on moisture, and then and then cast uh, from the steeps into the drums, and then start rotating them slowly in order to help uh, you know sort of turn the germinating barley and stop it from sort of clamping together and and sort of you know building up heat and all of these problems that are associated with uh, with germinating barley which is typically sort of solved was historically typically solved by by obviously turning you know germinating barley by hand with wooden shovels a back, back breaking work um, uh, but that was sort of the technological development of that late Victorian era, which allowed uh, allowed barley to be to be turned by drums. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, it was unique at the time, and the technology really never caught on in Scotland at that scale. So, um, uh, so, so by the time the technology was sort of mature, malting was already consolidated in Scotland, and it was sort of moved away from distilleries to uh, to centralised malting. So, so, so Spigburn was really unique in in the way they operated drum maltings on site and operated operated them for a long time. They were they were eventually electrified in the 1950s uh, when the distillery was connected to the grid because initially they were powered by a, by a, you know a, a steam engine and uh, they they were not they were they were they were in constant use uh, up until. Uh, 1960s and even in the 1970s the owners at the time dcl they were still using them for like for for research for trials you know so they were still operational in the 1970s which shows you that it's it's a it's a piece of technology that really sort of you know depreciated well and um, and um, had a very very good run but they are fascinating to see and um, if anyone is interested in the history of scottish distilling that's one thing that you must must see i mean what will be on your bucket list for sure is seeing uh, working malting floors, right? So you want to go 
to Balveni or a Freud or, or, or Highland Park and you will want to see a malting floor in action and you absolutely 100% should, uh, uh, but, but you should also make the pilgrimage to Speyburn and see the other side of doing things, which is, which is uh, drum maltings on site at a Scotch whiskey distillery. Listen, absolutely, and, and delighted that, in fact, they are now welcoming visitors as well. Could could you maybe kind of tell us a wee bit about Spaven whiskey? Yeah. Um. So to your point regarding um regarding um welcoming visitors, because I I went on the tangent and I forgot to say that uh, you can now officially visit Spaven. So we opened for the first time last year for the Spirit of Speyside Festival, which was a huge success. We're fully sold out. You won a big major award as well. For we that. did. We did. We, we got awarded the best new experience at the Spirit of Speyside. Um, it was apparently it was a landslide, fairly unanimous. Uh, and we were also, the experience was sold out within hours of putting up on the website. So, you know, the, the tours were, were fully booked and fully sold out. Uh, and they were an absolute hit. So we had no choice. We had to open the distillery to the public. We now have full-time, you know, uh, magnificent uh, little sort of site where we operate from, little store, beautiful tasting area, but the tour guides are brilliant. And, and, you know, they'll they'll take you on a tour and they'll show you around the site, including the drum malting. So if you you fancy having a look at that, it, it, it used to be, you know, it used to be close to the public. You would never be able to see it. And now it's something that's uh, that's available. So uh, yeah, you're, you're you know a very warm welcome will be extended to you uh, when you arrive at Spaber. And I can't wait. It's one of the distilleries I've not visited, and uh, I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be ticking that off my list this year. To be honest with you, tell us a wee bit about Spaber's whiskey, Lucas, if you could. The, the whiskey itself is what I term an old school space cider. So it has those space-side qualities that we associate with the region, which is which is that drinkability, fruitiness. It has that sort of orchard fruit, nice, beautiful, very sort of soft, approachable middle. It would tend to sort of you know have that that kind of flash of higher ester sort of at the top, especially at higher ages. It shows that nice, beautiful kind of flourish, but it's, but it's restrained in that way. It's a it's a drink. It's a drinkable whiskey. It's a, it's a sort of very very approachable whiskey. Um, uh, but then actually it also carries that older school weight about it. Um, the, the, the spirit stills, uh, so it operates a wash still and two spirit stills, uh, Spayburn. And both the spirit stills are connected to warmed-up condensers. And we know the warmed-up condensers will tend to leave spirit more viscous um, and, and heavier. Uh, but with that may come a little bit, it may carry a little bit more of that kind of sweetness. It may carry a little bit of that, that kind of particular, that, that sort of darker tonality of flavor, if you like. And that's, that's exactly it. Um, I think, I think, um, and I, I, I hear this and I see this a lot, that Speyside style has become sort of synonymous with, with easy drinking, but also light Right, we we uh, I I hear this all the time. Oh, space siders are light, you know, and I and I think to myself, not really. I mean, there are light space siders which are delicious, right? Like your Glenlivet, uh, but there are also heavy space siders which are delicious, like Mortlock. Uh, and I think Speyburn sits comfortably in in the in the sort of in the bottom in the bottom half of that spectrum, if you like. So it is it is on a heavier side, but it's on the sort of but it's very very drinkable. And very approachable. So um, yeah, so so that's that's sort of the style of it. And, uh, and then you have a, a vertical range of Speyburn to choose from, including a no-eat statement expression called Brad Norak, uh, which is all American oak, very sort of you know it's designed to be sort of enjoyed, uh, you know sort of very kind of 
you know freely not to get sort of too hung up on it you know it, it works brilliantly on its own but it, it, you know it loves an ice cube as well you know it, lo it loves to be in a sort of in a high bowl and um, then there's the 10 year old which is sort of the flagship that's beautiful sort of creamy you know more citrusy and then you have the 15 the beautiful old school 15 and then the old school 18 year old and they both involve sherry cask and maturation so they are more more leaning towards a sort of dessert dram or kind of quite serious sort of late night dram uh, territory so there's something for for everybody within within that space and range and it's a range that has been overlooked for too long right uh, so it's it's something that maybe the whiskey aficionados uh, uh, are yet to rediscover and just see the, the the absolute sort of mind-boggling value that's that's locked into that range with you know a proprietary bottling of sherry cask 18 year old from you know heavier style kind of space side distillery available for 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 the kind of money that you sort of, sort of take a you know you will take a, a second glance and and you will pick up a bottle once you've once you've tasted the drum awesome it sounds incredible and is there any kind of uh, new expressions coming out over the next uh, wee while yeah, well, listen, I wouldn't want to spoil any any surprises. And I know the team is sort of working very hard on a couple of other things. We're not quite yet ready to talk about it. But, you know, we will be... Um, watch the space. Watch the space. We are offering an experience again at the Spirit of Space site this year. Uh, you know, if you if you are, are, are sort of in a position to visit us, if you're, if you're going to visit, watch the space closely because uh, the tickets for the various experiences are about to go on sale. And they tend to sell really, really, really quickly. We don't turn anyone away, even if you don't get your tickets. Still come along, and you know we'll still share a dram with you. But in terms, of, in terms of the tours that are available sort of through the week, those will sell out quickly. So, so, so you know, make sure you're you're staying on it. And I think I'm, I'm probably not re revealing too much. Hopefully not. I'm, maybe I'll get a slap on the wrist from 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 colleagues and you know on the brand side, but. Uh, you know, would it even be Spirit of Space Out if we didn't have a, a surprise release or a surprise offering around that time? No, listen, it sounds incredible, actually. Listen, it's been, a, it's been an absolute and utter delight um, speaking to you, Lucas. What I would like to do now is, is that at the end of um, the StoryTours.Scott podcasts, we always do a wee, kinda, a wee desert island dram section. Basically, what we do is it's just a wee light-hearted kind of look at the... Kind of your, your kind of your whiskey palette and things like that. So I ask everybody, Lucas, what would you say as your three favourite drums and why? Yeah, I mean, I I thought about this a little bit, and I I think there isn't really a good answer, right? Whatever whatever you say, I mean, I'm sure we will stop recording this, and I will turn around and think to myself, oh, I should have said that, or I should have said that, right? So there are so many fantastic whiskeys. So one thing one thing to say is. Uh, you know, here at International Beverage and, and you know, people behind Old Pulteney and Val Blair and Speyburn, um, but also other brands, you know, like Anok, for example, obviously, uh, you know, it's a hugely popular brand that we, that we also own. Um, we, are, we are sort of whiskey fans. We are passionate about the category. We're passionate about whiskey, first and foremost. Uh, I'm actually sitting here. Sorry, I'm, I'm just cutting across here. I'm actually in my right hand at the moment. I'm actually sitting with... Uh, 18 year old Anok. Yeah. And it's it's an incredible whiskey. What a dram, right? What a dram. It is it is uh, honestly, um I've actually got I was I actually done this three favourite drams and uh, the Anok eighteen was was uh, was was in it. It was it's prob it's one of the most 
incredible whiskies I've ever tasted in my life. Sorry, I'm I'm cutting across you there. No, not at all, not at all. Uh, so yeah, so it's so it's so difficult, but we are whiskey people, right? Uh, and we also yeah. enjoy whiskies from other distilleries, from our friends and 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 uh, and colleagues, you know, across uh, you know across the industry, uh, up and down Scotland and beyond and beyond. Um, so yeah, so thinking about this, like I'm I'm actually thinking about what what dram would I enjoy? What would I like to be able to taste again that I maybe haven't had the opportunity to uh, to sample in a while? And um, you know, I was talking about uh, you know the the northern coast and uh, you know Caithness coast. Uh, um, in a few minutes ago, and it made me think of that old school Scapa 14, um, you know, those um, uh, those sort of, uh, I think, pre, uh, probably sort of pre-2008 releases uh, in, in, in those kind of old school round tubes. What a dram that was. I remember being just so in love with it. So I think in terms of a drinkable whiskey, I'd probably go with that. I also remember very, very fondly Beaumont Bordeaux cask, which is also an old school release and I loved that wine finish on on the sort of intensely kind of smoky but kind of warm style of Beaumont. I'm a big fan of Isla but you know I think it would be uh, it would be wrong of me not to include one of my own and if I could I would do all three maybe but uh, but uh, in terms of our own portfolio um, I don't really have a firm favorite but I think the current 25 year old Balblair is stunning it is just something else. If I could drink that for the rest of my life, I'd be, I'd be so happy. It just has that, that that clarity, clean intensity, and just the distillery style shining through it. Uh, it's the perfect Balblair, just through and through. And four people. So you're going to have your last whiskey tasting, and you can invite four people. And obviously, at the end of the day, we always kind of say this, but that you know, you you know, you would want your wife there or your your family or whatever, but. That's not allowed, actually. So yeah, it's got to be kind of four people that are, 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 unless you want to invite your Uncle Robert or something like that. But four people that you would actually do your last whiskey tasting with. Similarly, I think this is a, this is a toughie, right? This is a toughie, and and um, I have so much love and respect and admiration for uh, the one and only Dave Broom, and I think. I think, you know, I, I have to include, you know, when it comes to sort of whiskey commentators, uh, Dave is, is my favourite. I'm, I'm, my apologies to everybody else, the wonderful community that sort of the whiskey journalists are, but, but Dave, Dave is, um, uh, un, you know, un, unimitable. Uh, he's, he's, just, um, uh, he's just an industry giant, an icon, uh, and, uh, you know, I would love to spend more time and share share more, more drums with, with, with. Um, I was also thinking about... Um, um, you know, I'm a big, big Formula One fan. Any, yeah. any Formula One fans out there? <laughs> I think I was thinking any Formula One drivers, you know, that have connection to the whiskey world. And actually, off the top of my head, I, could, I instantly I could see, I could see a few. So, you know, I was thinking maybe, you know, uh, David Coulthard, which I think would be so amazing. But I think in more recent news, uh, Jensen Button, obviously. Um, you know, has made made a foray into the world of distilled spirits with 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 sort of with with, with the on the branding side, and uh, so I think it would be really 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 cool to inquire with him uh, with him uh, about that. Uh, well, listen, I'm making a fantasy list here, so I can invite anyone. So so I'm going to take somebody from like the world of show business, but I also want to still include you know um, a whiskey link. So how about uh, how about Christina Hendricks? You know, uh, like with her with her sort of beautiful Johnny Walker campaign, and I would love to hear more about how that um, uh, how that uh, went. You know, 
I'm fascinated by these um, uh, by these endorsements, and it's something that's that, that that's very much kind of very it's very current, especially in the in the American North American markets. Um, uh, you see you see these sort of either endorsed brands or brands which are just outright sort of branded or even owned by by various sort of people from from show business or sport. You know, it's a it's a huge uh, it's a huge thing. And and listen. You know, I'm so grateful for you. Uh, to, to, I'm grateful to you for having me on. So I have reserved the final spot for you, David. Why don't you join us at my fantasy well, table? Honestly, mate, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely, I would be absolutely delighted with that. So we're actually going to kind of talk about um, your whiskey book. You're allowed to take a whiskey book with you as well. Yeah, well, I actually have a whiskey book on my desk right now, uh, which I kind of started nibbling at. Uh, but it's not something that you can, I think, just just read through in a in a sitting. And it's the wonderful, the the one and only, the distillation of whiskey, which is notes and observations on its historical and practical aspects, 1927 to 1931. It is, uh, you know, a, an enormous piece of work that's been undertaken by, uh, uh, you know, uh, people around of James James E. B. and uh, uh, enormous piece of sort of historical research around Scotch whiskey, which really gives you a window into production methods and whiskey distilling. Uh, you know, in 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 the late 1920s and early 1930s, I'm finding it very very fascinating. My brain is sort of working overtime in terms of you know how could we use this for for innovation for future products going forward. But it's a relatively recent release. Uh, you can pick it up from you know your friendly. Uh, your friendly online online retailer such as uh, Royal Mile Whiskies, um, you know it's not it's not sort of um, it's not exactly sort of a light read, uh, but it's something that as a you know if you're a dedicated whiskey fanatic, uh, you should you should pick up a copy. No, listen, absolutely. So as it's, it's you're you're saying goodbye to everybody, including me actually, and I'm I'm very touched actually that you invited me along. Um, what music will you be listening to as you sail off to your desert island? You know, um, I, 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 my musical taste tends to drift, but, but I think if I was up against the wall, if I can only take one album, I have to revert to something I was listening to as a teenager, right? I mean, it's it's going to be like the, the, the most sort of soothing thing for your soul. So I'm going to take Bruce Dickinson's solo album, The Chemical Wedding, because I'm a metalhead and I make no apologies for it. <laughs> that's, listen, that's absolutely brilliant. Lucas, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Um, and all I can say to the listeners is, is if you've not visited any of these distilleries or you've visited one or two of them, you really need to go back and kind of, you know, explore these distilleries because they are really what Scotch whiskey is all about. So, Lucas, all it takes for me to say is it's, it's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to kind of speaking to you again soon. David, thank you very much for having me on. Sorry for, for you know, talking for so long. Uh, you know, all the best to you and the team and also... You know, to all your all your listeners, yes, I'm I'm talking to you. You know, come and come and visit us. Uh, come and visit us. The distilleries are are open, and um, yeah, a, a warm welcome awaits. Thanks for listening to this month's podcast. To find out more about any of the distilleries mentioned, Bulblair, Pulteney, Spayburn, and Knockdo, go to www.distillerytours.scot and click on their dedicated listings. To be the first to hear about next month's podcast, as well as competition news and lots of other great whiskey content, sign up to our monthly newsletter at distillerytours.scot forward slash sign up.